I think being on a river and paddling is a really cool pace to see a landscape and to kind of like move through move through a place because it's slow enough that you're, you're kind of always moving but it's slow enough that you really get time to to see places so I don't know I feel really lucky that I got I got the chance to do this and see so much kind of cover so much ground and to get to see it over a season and kind of see the whole thing end to end and watch it change slowly Episode 269, Heather Hansman talks about a two-month paddling trip down the Green River from Wyoming into Utah. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have Heather Hansman with us, and boy, Heather's going to be a fun interview. Heather is a full-time freelance journalist, and in a previous life she was a raft guide, she was a ski bum and a volunteer ski patrol, and uh, she grew up actually back east. She was born in Massachusetts, I believe, and went to college in Maine, but after college she came to Colorado because she wanted to be the ski bum and enjoy the skiing life, and she got so good at that, she ended up being editor for Skiing Magazine as well as Powder Magazine, so she's really been there and done that. Then she moved to Seattle, where she's been for the last four years, but she came back our way last summer and did an epic float trip down the Green River from Wyoming all the way to where the Green joins the Colorado and that's going to be the main subject of today's show. We're really excited to talk to Heather a little bit about skiing and a lot about this rafting and about a new book that she's putting together about this trip down the green. So, Heather, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks for having me. You bet. It is uh, our pleasure. It's a lot of fun to talk to people that are excited about nature and connecting with nature and protecting nature and experiencing nature in the ways that you have. So I'm really glad that you're here today. Me too. Well, give us a little bit of the backstory about, let's start around the moving to Colorado to be a ski bum. Yeah, um, I was, uh, like you mentioned, I went to college in Maine and I raft guided kind of every summer uh, while I was up there. And I really, when I graduated, I really kind of had this idea that I wanted to move the mountains and I wanted to be kind of outside all the time. That was like the one one priority I had. Um, so a guy that I worked with there in Maine um, worked at Beaver Creek. So he got me and a couple of my friends from college jobs there scanning lift tickets doing kind of like the classic ski bump thing um so two of my friends from college and I moved out to the Vail Valley then and I have not come back I guess is really the story of that um and I skied in the winter and then raft guided in the summer out there um for a couple of years before going back to journalism school in Boulder wow that's a lot of fun you know I used to do a, quite a bit of kayaking which I don't do as much now I do more canoeing these days but I always enjoyed it because I would ski in the wintertime, and then when the snow started to melt, I could use that same water again in the rivers when I was kayaking, and it makes a year-round opportunity. Yeah, definitely. And that's a big, I mean, Colorado is the headwaters for a lot of the, you know, like stuff goes east in the Arkansas and stuff goes west in the Colorado. So, like, Colorado's the big headwaters for most of the country. It's mm. a big <laughs> Well, and that's kind of funny because it's where the rivers start. But I, I grew up in Oklahoma. And I was mm-hmm. used to seeing rivers like the Arkansas as it goes through Oklahoma, and it's a large river there, you know. And then the Arkansas and Colorado, you can step across it 
at its at its source, right? And then you raft on it through Browns Canyon and below. But I guess the point is a lot of the rivers in Colorado, even though it's the source, they're not as huge as they are by the time they get to other places. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's kind of um, people don't, you, you only kind of often see the chunk of river near you. So I think a lot of times that's like a hard perception thing for people to, to think about a river being different somewhere else and being much bigger or much smaller. You know, rivers change a lot over their course, both in terms of how they flow and in terms of like how much we've managed them and changed them. So I think it's kind of interesting. That's an interesting story to tell. Ah, that's a good point. You know, growing up on the Arkansas and Oklahoma and then being near the Arkansas here in Colorado, I see both ends, right? (laughs) But it's a good point because it, it makes us think more about what a river really is from start to finish. And let's get more into that when we get back to your green river trip, but I'd like to come back to skiing first. Um, I know an awful lot of our listeners are thinking, I would love to do the ski bum thing in Colorado. <laughs> and it it's a ton of fun, but what is it really like? How would you describe it? Um, I mean, it is a ton of fun. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I was 21 when I moved out of Colorado. I was fresh out of college and that was probably skied every day and I worked, you know, for 10 bucks an hour and waited tables and, you know, pieced together 10 jobs. Um, and it was a ton of fun and I'm really... I'm really glad that I, it's obviously had, it shaped my life in a lot of ways, but I, um, I think it's, I'm really glad that I did it. And my, my, um, two friends that I moved up to Colorado with, we actually all got together for a ski trip last winter. We went to Silverton, which we hadn't all skied together in a really long time. And one of them, um, just finished business school and she works for kind of a big marketing firm and the other one's a college administrator. We're doing really different things, but we all kind of realized that 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 couple years that we spent skiing kind of like shaped us all in a lot of ways and you know Mm. made us figure out what we thought was important and kind of our priorities and made us all really feel tied to the mountains so I think I would recommend (laughs) if anybody's thinking about doing it definitely do it and it doesn't have to be ski bumming I mean I think just like going and finding a way to spend a chunk of time in the mountains is not gonna hurt you so you said you did that for how long a couple of years three yeah I spent two years in the Vail Valley and then a year in Summit County you're in Summit County. You know, before we started recording here, we were kind of talking about how the ski industry is changing. And uh, a couple of bullet points for the listeners who may not be aware. Um, lift tickets are getting very expensive. Ski areas are kind of changing their marketing approach. And uh, it's becoming a little bit more challenging. The barriers to entry are a little bit higher than they used to be. And then it's become such a popular sport that there there are issues with crowding, especially on the roads to and from the ski areas. What do you think about the changes in the industry? Is this a positive thing overall, or or what would you change about it? Oh, I, I don't know what I can change. I mean, it is, it's sort of a market thing, I think, that, you know, it's getting more expensive because resorts can change, tar- charge more because more people are going. I mean, I know in Seattle, where I live now, some of the Stevens Pass this year, which is kind of one of the big areas close to the city, had to turn people away a bunch of weekends because they just couldn't fit people in the parking lot. They couldn't get people on the Hill. Um, I think, I don't know. I think it's kind of a hard squeeze point right now. Um, and a lot of, there's been a lot of consolidation in ski resort management. And even in the past couple of weeks, Vail Resorts has bought up a bunch of ski areas. And I think that makes it easier for them to charge more. Um, and it squeezes out some of the smaller ski resorts. I don't, it's, it's an interesting time in skiing right now. I don't, I don't have a good answer for what I think is, the right way to do things, but I think it is changing a lot. I think climate change is, is impacting, you know, winter weather and snowpack in a lot of places. I think that's going to be kind of an interesting 
future battle and how how we ski and what that looks like. Um, and I think the rise of backcountry skiing is kind of related to that in a lot of ways to the kind of like popularity and pricing of skiing. So I think, yeah, I don't have a good answer for how to, <laughs> how to make it more available and more equitable and open to more people. But I think it is definitely a, we're in a time of change in skiing, I think for sure. Well, I'd like to throw one thought out there, Heather, and you can, <laughs> um, you can rebut it if you'd like. But my one thought is that it seems that there are a lot of resorts who said, well, with the number of skier days that we're getting now, we could either try to expand the resort to accommodate more skiers, build more lodges, pay for more lifts, and try to get the resort so we can manage the traffic, or mm-hmm. we can just raise prices until we start seeing those skier days level off, and then we're going to make more money and not have to build new infrastructure. I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not sure kind of what the, if there are two intentional tracks like that or what the, I do know it's, running a ski resort is a hard hard business like oh, especially because yeah. they're so dependent on weather um so i think a lot of especially kind of the small resorts you know there's been a couple in the west there's been a couple kind of rough winters in the past few years um i think a lot of ski resorts are kind of just trying to get by as best they can and a lot of that is like raising prices to try and try and make it work especially when they're trying to battle out big resorts you know kind of like multi-resort groups that have a little bit more leeway in pricing mm. yeah it's a challenging thing i guess the reason I mention it is that my perspective may be completely off in left field. That's kind of the feel that I get for it. But I keep thinking that there's an opportunity now more than ever for some of the smaller resorts to be, oh, I don't even know how to say it, but to be the resort that invites the people who don't want to pay for the huge lift ticket prices and make more of a, um, I'll just say, a middle-class resort. And skiing has always been a middle-class sport but it's getting more and more difficult for middle class people to afford it these days so yeah and part of that is is resort ownership um and i think like east coast where i grew up there are maybe more kind of smaller you know independently owned resorts but it's a hard it's a hard business to make work and you've seen a lot of those kind of smaller east coast and northwest resorts or california you know like a couple of the resorts outside of tahoe that aren't owned by big companies have shut down. So yeah, I think there is kind of a, it's hard to find that middle ground. Mm, Yeah. Well, definitely changing times, changing economy, changing weather. It's, it's a challenging time for the ski industry, no doubt. Yeah, definitely. I think there is like, I hope that it doesn't kind of squash the interest or the ability of people to be able to go skiing because they get priced out. I think that for listeners who want to learn to ski, I don't want to discourage anybody. It's worth it. The prices are extreme, but the sport is still worth it. But the key, I think, is to find a way to get a season pass. Even if you're only going to come and ski for a, a long holiday, you will probably save money by buying a season pass, you know, the previous fall. So look into that. That's really what makes skiing affordable. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think that might also, depending on the resort, that might push the problem a little bit, too. A lot of these kind of big, you know, if you buy a the resort pass or something like that, sometimes that pushes people towards the bigger resorts than the smaller resorts. And then the smaller resorts can't compete because mm-hmm. they can't offer as cheap of passes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky, tricky, tricky game right now, I think. Well, regardless, I think that it's worth it. It's worth learning to ski. It's worth teaching your family to ski. It's, uh, it's one of the funnest things, and the skills that you learn in bounds can become skills out of bounds, you know, that you can use as well. 
And you were just talking about backcountry skiing and how that popularity seems to be growing too. And mm-hmm. uh, it is a fabulous sport. So did you do a lot of backcountry skiing? Um, I did, yeah. And I, I did, and I have my um, dad kind of got into backcountry skiing, and I started doing that in New Hampshire growing up. And then um, when I moved out west and kind of moved to Colorado, I got much more where there's kind of more more exploring that you can do. I got much more into it. So hmm. I want to move on to the the river trip because I think that's going to be a, a really fun story to hear. But before we do, one last question: Would you contrast backcountry skiing? to resort skiing so that people that have never done either have a sort of an idea of what the differences are? I would say the big difference between backcountry and resort skiing is that backcountry skiing is much more about the uphill than the downhill. A lot of times you're all day skinning up something and climbing up something for, you know, 15 minutes of skiing. (laughs) So, and then resort skiing is much more about the downhill. And it depends on, I mean, you're outside, in both of them, but I think backcountry skiing often you're much more aware of the environment that you're in, or you're kind of having to pay more attention to it as you're moving through it because you're looking at snowpack, you're looking at potential avalanche conditions, you're route finding. So, yeah, I think it's kind of a uphill versus downhill thing. Really yeah, definitely. And the ski areas spend huge amounts of of energy and time making sure that their resort is as safe as they can make it. And uh, when you go into the backcountry, it's all up to you. Yeah, definitely. And then it's important. You you have to be, your awareness about where you are and what you're doing has to be much more intentional when you're backcountry skiing. Yeah. I think that's a big, big, big part of it. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. All right, I wanted to read off a couple of reviews we got recently. Um, These are in iTunes. The first one is from Brian F. in Dayton, Ohio. Brian says, best outdoor podcast. He gave us five stars, and he says, great podcast highlighting all the things I love about the outdoors, camping, backpacking, fly fishing, etc. Thanks, Brian. We appreciate that. And the other one that I wanted to mention was from I Am Sean Kennedy. He says, love the show. Five stars. Great show, guys. Helps me keep my mind off work while I have to be there. Can't wait to try all the new things I've been learning about. Well, I Am Sean Kennedy. That is exactly why we do this show. We want to encourage you guys to get out there and try some awesome things as we introduce new things to you. So thanks to you both for leaving a review and a rating in iTunes. We hope everybody else will go out and do the same thing. Now on with the show. Thank you. 
well, let's let the snow melt and get on the Green River. (laughs) So you last summer, starting in May, spent two months going down the green. And how close to the source were you able to start? Um, I started in Green River Lakes, which is kind of right at the base of the Wind River Range um, in kind of centralish Wyoming, um, right by Pinedale is kind of the closest town. Um, and it starts, it's not exactly the headwaters. There's kind of a couple, it runs off a peak called Three Waters Peak. Um, and, but that the lakes were kind of the closest place that I could get a boat into the water. I think you can get a really, you can get a little creek boat or something into the upper part, but, um, I kind of started where it seemed to make the most sense to do it in a boat. So what kind of a, a boat did you use? Um, I used a pack raft for most of the trip. Um, I probably two thirds of the trip, I had, um, a couple sections where I had people along, um, or I did one chunk with a commercial trip. So we were in a bigger raft. Um, and then I did the last part of the river, which flows into Canyonlands in canoes, um, with some friends, but most of it has some pack rafts, especially the raft. So tell our listeners what a pack raft is. We've done several shows about pack rafting, but if they haven't heard one yet, what is a pack raft? Yeah. I mean, a pack raft is. I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like, I guess. It's a kind of small, light, one-person-sized raft that you can fold up and put in a backpack. So it's really good for um, getting into kind of backcountry areas or places where the shuttle or the getting into kind of like the point where you might want to start or finish is tricky. Um, And for me, it was kind of a really good tool for the chunks that I was going to be doing by myself because I could shuttle it and carry it and deal with it by myself. Um, And the one that I have has, it looks kind of like a little... Mine's blue. It kind of looks like a little bath, like one single size bathtub, basically. <laughs> um, but you can store one of the compartments inflatable, and one of the compartments opens up, so you can store gear inside of it. So it's kind of a really slick little one one lady watercraft. Very cool. So I love the idea of pack rafting. I think it's the greatest thing. And I was uh, enjoying interviewing people that have combined pack racking with mountain biking. Yeah. And they actually put their bike on their on their raft and it's a small raft, but they figured out a way to do it. So they would do epic trips where they would go hundreds of miles on river and on biking trail. And I just thought, what a fun thing to be able to do. Yeah. It's a really cool tool for connecting up kind of different, you know, terrain. I know a lot of people around Seattle where I live will do these kind of like hikes into the Olympic mountains and float outs. It's a really cool tool for being able to kind of link up different sports and get into some terrain where you might have to cross water and also be climbing over mountains or also want to ride to cover, cover ground. So yeah, it's a cool, it was really nice to get to spend a bunch of time in it and I'm kind of excited to get to do more trips in it. That's fun. So would you recommend a certain brand or model of a pack raft or? Um, The one that I don't have a ton of experience with other brands. The one that I have is the Nalpaca raft. Um, And they're they're kind of one of the first companies that made pack rafts. They're out of Alaska. It's a family company. And I've been, I've been super happy with mine, but I don't have a ton of points of comparison. So yeah, <laughs> seal, seal of approval, but without much comparison. Okay. Very cool. You know, a, a pack raft, because it, it is packable, there's some limitations, right? It's not going to be as big as a big raft. It's not going to be as maneuverable as a whitewater kayak. It, it kind of splits the difference depending on which brand or model that you get, I guess. But did you find it was adequate for everything you needed to do on the green? Um, yeah, I was really happy with it. I When I was first kind of planning the trip, I basically called or emailed people I knew who had done that trip. Or I mean, not a ton of people do the whole green because there's some parts that are pretty flat, watery, and boring. Um, but a couple of people have. And 
um, and other people, I, you know, kind of reached out to people who had done similar trips. And one of the guys who had done a lot of it in a canoe was like, oh God, that's going to be terrible. <laughs> Backcraft's going to be slow. You're not going to, you know, you're going to be fighting the wind. Um, so it probably wasn't the most, you know, it's not the most streamlined, most efficient boat, but it worked out. It was kind of like the good, a really good middle ground for me and kind of, I was comfortable running it in some white water. I could carry it myself, you know, I could slip it around. It wasn't maybe super, super fast, but all things considered, it was a really good tool for the trip. Well, you were a, a raft guide, so you're very experienced in rafting. And I think that, I mean, obviously that gives you the, the confidence that you need to take off and do something like this. But for someone who's more of a novice, um, did you find that the green had some really challenging sections or, or was it doable? I mean, to kind of just generally describe how difficult the green is and, and what the journey's like. Yeah, um, at the green, I mean, part of why the green made sense for me for this trip or why I thought it was pretty interesting is because it kind of has a pretty big diversity of different kinds of water. Um, there are two two sections that people run commercially and then run recreationally kind of most commonly, and that's the Gates of Lador, which is in Dinosaur National Park, and then Desolation in Gray Canyon, which is in kind of um, northeastern Utah. Um, and those both have some kind of class three, Lador has some kind of like big class four water. Um, so there are sections that have significant white water and you need permits. You need permits for both of those sections and they're, especially against Lador is kind of a hard permit to get. Um, so, and then there's some other chunks in the headwaters. There's some kind of like class three white water and, um, right below Flaming Gorge Dam, um, they call it the A, B, and C section. There's some white water in there too. That's a kind of common fishing section. So there are some sections that have, I mean, it's a pretty diverse river as you go along it. There's some sections that have significant white water, but then there are also, there's a lot of kind of pretty mellow flat water. So I think if you were thinking about doing a trip like this and didn't have a ton of experience, I would be really um, diligent in your research and figuring out what sections um, were within the range of water that you'd be comfortable paddling. Um, mm. And American Whitewater, which is kind of the biggest recreational nonprofit for paddling in the country, has a really good, their website's a really good resource for that, um, for what different stretches of river look like. So, yeah, I mean, I think don't, water's a really powerful thing. You know, like if you're thinking about doing something like this, don't push, don't push your ability level, especially if you're doing a big solo trip. But there are, you know, there are places where you can find, I'm sure, things that you're comfortable with. Well, Heather, I'm going to, tie in my personal story about kayaking just a little bit. I started kayaking um, when my wife Ann and I first married, and mm -hmm. uh, I loved it. It's an absolutely wonderful sport. And I got to the point that, that my role was not bomb-proof, but fairly reliable. I, uh, I could do Class 4 water, but I was more comfortable on Class 3. But then we started having kids. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get to do it very often, so my skill level kind of plateaued. And what I just described, okay, I can do four. I'm more comfortable in three. I really like something in between. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what happens to a lot of people like that. They reach too far. And I got onto a, a flooded creek for a, a day, and uh, I ended up swimming through a boulder field, got really bruised up, and, of course, complete yard sale with paddle and and boat and, and everything possible that could get scattered, including our throw rope, everything else. Everything's just on as far scattered in the river as you can imagine. And I, I finally got out of that rapid, and I realized that I either needed to do the sport a whole lot more to build my skill or to not take chances like that because I kept on thinking about my kids. Mm -hmm. Water is a powerful thing, and that was a tough swim. I mean, I got pretty banged up, and I just said, you know what? 
I, it's not worth it. I'm going to be a dad. Maybe I'll, I'll come back and kayak again later in life. But I wanted to share that story because water is very powerful. And maybe I wimped out. I don't know. For me, it was just a choice. It was, I, uh, I'm going to be a dad first and I can learn to take on the, the bigger rapids in a kayak later in life if I want to. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's wimping out. I think that's making smart choices. I mean, I don't think like being, trying to prove something and putting yourself in danger is like, I don't know. That never seems like a good idea to me. I don't think, I don't think any kind of recreation is worth putting yourself at risk. You know, I agree. I always say, you know, uh, do it in a manner so you can come back to do it again another day. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's really what it's about for me. And, uh, but I, I told that story in part because you did a lot of this trip alone. It sounds like, is that right? Yeah, I did. So that sounds kind of scary to me in a way. What, what, what were your feelings about that? Yeah. I mean, I, and I had, especially kind of going into it, I had seen some chunks of the river before, but there was a lot that was pretty unknown. And I definitely had a lot of fear around that. I mean, both in terms of like paddling and also just kind of being a woman alone in this landscape that I didn't know. Um, and I got um, that section I was talking about right below Flaming Gorge Dam, the A section, which is, um, you know, people fish it somewhat regularly. Um, and that was kind of the first chunk that I did that had rapids that was really alone. Um, and my aunt helped me shuttle that section. She dropped me off of the dam and the river was really high. They had a really big spring and they were releasing a ton of water out of the dam and they wouldn't let my aunt stay on the boat ramp because we weren't with a commercial trip. So she basically just dumped me and my boat and all my bags. And all of a sudden I was like staring at this big white water by myself, totally gripped. And wow. in this boat. I wasn't, wasn't sure about, um, and it took, I mean, I guess the, that risk thing and putting yourself in a position we were talking about just a second ago, like there's always sort of a like gauge of pushing yourself and what you feel comfortable and what, what's a good idea. Um, and that ended up being one of my favorite sections of the river. It's really beautiful in there. And I was, I was gripped for a lot of it, but I felt good afterwards. And I think that that, I, I think I'm a pretty cautious person and I'm pretty, especially in, in, in the backcountry and on the river, things like that. And my gauge of where my ability level is, I feel like is accurate to overly cautious. So I was never putting myself in a position where I really, really felt at risk, but there always was kind of the possibility of, you know, like you're dealing with big white water, you are by yourself, something could, something could go wrong. So I guess that was, I tried to never put myself in a risky situation, but that was always a factor. Like that was always definitely there. Yeah, no doubt. I don't know about you, but what I found is, I would get that kind of trepidation as I was getting into a run. And then at the end of the run, I'd be like, I want to go back and do it again right now because now it won't be so scary. I can enjoy it twice as much if I could just go back and do it again right now. Did you feel that way? Yeah, definitely. And that is kind of an interesting, I mean, like with skiing, with paddling, with a lot of that stuff, that kind of that space of pushing yourself and feeling accomplished and like you did something and a little bit scared without making stupid decisions and getting yourself in a position where you are actually in danger. Like that, that margin is an interesting place, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And it's different for every person and it also changes with experience and skill. So. Definitely, yeah. And I think a lot of people, I mean, for me definitely. And a lot of people, as you get older, you get more cautious because you, you know, it can happen. You have more people who care about you and worry about you and that you're responsible for. And yeah, I mean, I think that it's an interesting, yeah, it's, it's always an interesting question, I think. Yeah, definitely. There's a difference. I mean, as a as an alpine skier, I don't know of an inbound slope that I wouldn't ski. But as a boater, 
there are tons of water that I won't get near. <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of, of runs that would scare me too much. So I think it has a lot to do with uh, your experience level for sure. Yeah. So what was it like two months on the river? I mean, I think a lot of people are salivating right now because <laughs> they're, they're imagining drifting through beautiful canyons and, and seeing wildlife and just, you know, they, maybe they did a day trip on a river once and said, oh boy, that was so relaxing. But what's it like to do the whole river, two months long. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was one of the coolest trips I'll probably ever do. It was, it was amazing. Um, and it's just, I mean, that river changes a lot over its course. You go, you know, I started in May in the mountains in Wyoming and there was still a little bit of snow on the ground and it was cold and you're kind of in this, you know, like scrub brushy forest land. And then you go through, and I hadn't spent a ton of time in Southwestern Montana or Wyoming. I don't think a lot of people do. Um, and you're going through ranch land for a while and then kind of oil and gas land. And then you get back into these beautiful canyons um, around Flaming Gorge. And then it kind of opens back up into ranches. And then you get into dinosaur and canyon lands, which are some of, I think, some of the most beautiful places in the country. Um, so, I mean, I think being I think being on a river and paddling is a really cool pace to see a landscape and to kind of like move through move through a place because it's slow enough that you're, you're kind of always moving, but it's slow enough that you really get time to, to see places. So I don't know. I feel really lucky that I got, I got the chance to do this and see so much kind of cover so much ground and to get to see it over a season and kind of see the whole thing end to end and watch it change slowly. So, yeah, I think that even, I mean, and I had family and friends come along for parts of it. And I think even for them, you know, my parents came for a week um, I had some friends come along at the end and I think even to be for those guys to be out there for a week and kind of float through this, these landscapes is a really, really cool, really special thing to get to do. So do, do you ever start to feel just waterlogged? <laughs> like you wanted to dry out a little bit? No, I mean, I think it also, I was in pretty deserty landscapes in, you know, May, June, July. So by the end it was, you know, it was pretty hot and you just wanted to be in the water all the time. Mm. Yeah. I didn't, um, I didn't get sick of it. I didn't really get bored. I didn't, when it ended, I was really sad. Yeah. I didn't get, I didn't get burned out on it or, you know. What a cool thing. So did you camp beside the river most of the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The whole time I had kind of a little, little tent shoved into my boat and my, you know, it was kind of like a heavy, heavy backpacking setup. Basically I had a little chair. I brought, um, an iPad and a solar charger to kind of take notes. Cause like I mentioned, I'm working on this book about it. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like somewhere on the line between dirt bag and luxury camping for the whole time. Nice. And then when I had, when I had people around, it was a little bit, you know, we'd bring bring a cooler for beer and bring more exciting food and things like that. So, oh, that sounds it actually sounds wonderful to me. You're you're making me want to go do it. But um, here's a novice question for you. I've done a lot of day trips on rivers, but I've not done extended trips like you're talking about. And one concern that I've had, even just camping near a mountain stream is what happens if the water level suddenly rises? You're asleep in your tent. Did, did, do you take precautions for that, or, or how do you manage that? Um, well, that, that's actually an interesting question on the green in particular, because um, most, a lot of rivers, most, I guess most rivers in the U.S. at this point are dam managed and dam regulated, and the green's kind of an interesting one, because um, above Fontenelle Dam, which is in kind of southwestern Wyoming, it's totally unregulated. And then in Dinosaur National Park, the Yampa flows in, which is the last kind of major undammed tributary of the whole Colorado River system. So in the green, there's actually 
more play in the flows than there are in a lot of rivers. Um, and I think especially, I kind of caught it at high flow for a lot of, a lot of the stuff that's sort of unregulated, I caught high. So I was more worried about the river going down than the river going up. Mm. Um, but I think you kind of, most, most sections that people float now, you can look at river gauges and get a sense of where, how they might change and what that might look like. Um, so I wasn't, that wasn't a huge concern on that trip, but, um, but yeah, it definitely can be. I was in uh, Texas a couple weeks ago. I paddled the Rio Grande through Big Bend National Park, which is, if people are looking for a cool float trip to do, that is a really, really cool one. Um, and that the whole Rio Grande through there is managed by the Conchas River that flows out of Mexico. It's all dam released. And that can change in, it can go from like 20,000 CFS to like 200 CFS if they change the dam and you don't hear about it until the river starts coming through the canyon. Wow. So that's, yeah, I think it's like a lot of that, that concern, I think is knowing what river you're on and what the, how the conditions can change and yeah, being, making sure you have kind of like the knowledge of what the variables might be going in. Yeah, I can see that. I think on an extended trip, like you did down the green, um, I guess over time you, you, you get a feel for it and a comfort level. But I think I would be hiking way up to high ground every night when I pitched the tent. And probably that would be unnecessary most of the time. Yeah. And making sure your boat's tied up and you're, it's not going to, if it comes up, it's not going to go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, yeah, it's definitely, yeah. Being, being aware of what the, what could change and what that might look like is definitely important when you're planning. I mean, even just to be up for a night or two, it's definitely important. Well, and I was, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was just going to ask if you could kind of describe a typical day for us. Uh, take us there what was it like yeah um it was really great I mean I would um I had it, I planned out the whole trip before I left I kind of knew the sections that I was going to break it up into and roughly how many miles I wanted to paddle each day and kind of what that would look like in some some sections of it it's really easy to get maps and you kind of know the features along the river and the kind of where you are all the time and some some chunks you don't um so I would get up in the morning and kind of always have a sense of like how much approximately how far I wanted to go and what that day might look like and get up, make oatmeal, blow up my boat, get my stuff all packed up and, you know, paddle. Usually it's less windy in the morning. So I kind of, and I'm kind of an early riser and, you know, I was out there with the sun kind of being the only factor. So get up, paddle, stop, have lunch, maybe go for a little hike around and explore and get, you know, depending on how much ground I had to cover that day, paddle for the afternoon, find a campsite that looked good, hang out, read. I did a lot of reading, good chunk of writing. Yeah, it was kind of this really nice, like, good chunk of physical activity, good chunk of reading and writing and hanging out and, you know, just kind of exploring a little, a cool place that I'd never been before. So the days were often pretty similar, but, but good. You know, it's kind of all the, all the stuff that I like to do rolled up in one package. What about loneliness? Um, you know, the only times I really got lonely were when I'd had people with me and then they left. That was kind of like those transitions were often hard. But um, being out, I was I was surprised at how not lonely I was when I was out by myself. It was actually really kind of kind of like fun and nice to kind of to really be in charge of my own days and only do what I wanted to do. <laughs> so yeah, I wasn't. I was lonely much less than I thought I would be. And there were definitely times where I kind of wanted somebody around to be like, Hey, this is really cool. Check this out. Or like, isn't that beautiful? But yeah, I never felt it was more, more solitude than loneliness. I think and like, sometimes I think that's a good thing. 
Yeah, I think I think it certainly can be for sure. And here's a question for you: In our modern world, um, our pace of life is is kind of high. There's Definitely. quite a bit of of busyness and trying to you know pay the bills and and get to the get to work and get home again and take care of the house and take care of the kids and you know how it goes. It it's a different rhythm of living than what you're going to have on the river. How long did it take you to to find that natural rhythm and to be able to <laughs> flow with it instead of fight it? Oh. I mean, I, I was actually, I kind of was really looking forward to being really checked out for this whole chunk of time. And it's, it's crazy how tapped in, like there were times where I was by myself in the middle of nowhere. I hadn't seen a person in five days and like, I could still get cell phone service and check Instagram. Um, (laughs) so, which I like, you know, hate myself for doing, but was totally doing. Yeah. I think it was, it was really nice to take a break from that and feel like my only obligation was to be paddling downstream and like people knew I was checked out. I wasn't accountable on emails or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's harder to get off the grid than I think it, you'd think it would be, or it should be being disconnected and not, and being able to kind of like step into that slower pace and not be, have your phone buzzing or not feel like you have to like keep up on the news of what's going wrong. Was it really, I don't know. I think it's really good for your brain. It was really valuable for me and it was less easy to find than I thought it would be. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I, I know that when I go backpacking, it takes a few days before I kind of leave the, the craziness behind and really begin to connect with where I am and what I'm doing. And uh, so I was just kind of curious. It sounds to me like a river trip would be one of the very best ways to unwind. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it was really, I mean, like I said, I had people along for some of the chunks and some of those were ones where we really didn't get any service. And it was just really nice to kind of be, you know, pull into a campsite, you set up camp, you cook dinner and then you just have time to hang out with people where you're not, people aren't checking their phones or looking, you know, being like, Hey, look at this video. I don't know. Like that. Yeah. I feel like that's harder and harder to come by these days and it feels really important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to leave all of my electronics in the car. I just wouldn't take them with me into the woods. And that was for that reason. That way I wouldn't be tempted. Right. Um, but now I tend to use my cell phone as my camera. Yeah, and so that, you know, that tempts me to take it with me. And, but what do you think? Would you, do you think it'd be better if, if you just left all the electronics at home? I don't know. Yeah. Like I often try to just like put my phone in, even if I'm just going out for a run or something like that, like, you know, put it in airplane mode or not take it. But yeah, like I use it as my camera. I use it to take notes a lot of times now. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a, it's a good, and a good and a bad tool, but, and it's a lot of times it's like a self-control thing. If you're not, if you're going to have it with you, are you going to check it? Are you going to look at it? Sure. Get outside with the Colorado Mountain Club. The CMC offers 3,000 outdoor skills courses, excursions, and special events every year to adventurers of all ages and abilities. Join today and receive an additional three free bonus months at www.cmc.org slash adventuresports and use discount code podcast. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180tac.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online.
Well, you did this trip for a reason, not just for fun. You're writing a book about it, and you mentioned before we started here that you learned so much about resource use debate and perspectives and things like that. So tell us, why did you do this trip? Yeah, I think I had, um, I mean, like I said, I was a rap guy. Environmental issues were really important to me, and they're something that I write about a lot, and this kind of idea, you know, if you live out west, the idea of being in drought and kind of water use feels like it's really, it's in the back of the dialogue a lot of the time, but it felt like something that was really, even though it was, I think water is probably going to be the most important resource question of our, you know, like our lifetimes, it felt like it was a really sort of like boring and hard to talk about and like abstract thing. So I kind of wanted, I wanted a way to kind of understand this idea of water use and like why, why it didn't feel equitable, why we were running out of it, why people were fighting about it. And for me, you know, with my background and also like the way I kind of think about the world being on the river and kind of seeing how that, how it was actually used felt like a really important way to look at that. Um, and so as I paddled down the river, I talked to, in the headwaters, I talked to ranchers and then I talked to the people who manage city water in Rock Springs, Wyoming. I talked to the people who manage the dams. I talked to the fish biologists who manage for the endangered fish that are in the river. I talked to other raft guides kind of about how they use water and what the, um, what the points of debate, they're like, what, how they feel like they're, it should be managed in the future and what's gonna, what's gonna happen. And basically we talked about this a little bit before, but kind of like the most important thing that I learned out of all that is that all those people are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to, trying to conserve water. They're trying to make sure we're set up well in the future, but their priorities are all slightly different and sometimes they don't align and that is sort of going to be I think the biggest point of debate in water use going forward and that's kind of what I what I took away from this big trip is that everybody's trying to do good but the solutions and the answers are really really tricky and really hard to find and take a lot of compromise that doesn't seem that will be hard to hard to come to I think you know and in, with population change as well we have weather changing and we have the population changing at the same time. And, you know, I guess someone could put together some sort of a, a chart and say that we're headed toward a, a, a cataclysmic doomsday eventually, but I don't think we necess- necessarily have to get there at all. But those are real concerns. Yeah, yeah. I think that, and you can't, you mean, you can't, you can't tell the population to stop growing. You can't, you can't tell people to not live in Denver or Southern California or Las Vegas or all these kind of like desert places with low water use that we, that we live in and kind of the, you know, the smartest, most thoughtful water managers that I talk to, their kind of big picture takeaway is that there is, we do have enough water to go around even as we grow, even as we need to feed, you know, the population is exploding, even as people live, you know, like everyone there's a lot of people moving to these Western cities. We just have to kind of change the way we use it and allocate it and value it and pay for it. And those are going to be hard. I don't know if it's, you know, political change or market change or things like that, but yeah, we can, it doesn't have to be cataclysmic. It just, we need to change things in a smart, thoughtful way soon. And I don't know exactly what those changes are going to look like or how that's going to, that's going to shake out. I think it's interesting. It's fascinating to me anyway, how perspectives have also changed, and I think it's a part of the discussion, but it wasn't that many years ago, call it a a couple of generations ago, when the perspective was we have this huge world 
all of these natural resources that need to be harvested and tamed for the use of humanity, right? That was the perspective. But now we're kind of on the other side of the fence saying, you know what happens when you dam up a river? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so to, to get the balance between those two extremes. The dam thing is a really, really interesting one and a really tricky one, I think, because most of the places that we live in the Western U.S. wouldn't be livable if it wasn't for dams and water storage and us being able to kind of control how we get water and when we get it and how quickly it comes to us. Um, and so that's, that's shaped, you know, like how we live now in a lot of ways. And, and dams have also really had these like, huge catastrophic impacts on ecosystems. And so, but I think you can't just, you have to, you have to kind of work within what we have now. Like we can't just, if we ripped out all the major dams and let the rivers be free flowing, we wouldn't be able to live in a lot of places that we, the, the kind of buzzword, I think in a lot of science and ecosystem management is adaptive management and trying to kind of work within these systems that we built up, these big dams, things like that, to try and make sure we are restoring ecosystems as much as we can. We're protecting animals and, you know, plants and things like that. And we're also protecting humans, you know, like making sure that people can live where they do live. So yeah, there's not, sure you can fault past generations for banning rivers and ripping up forests and things like that. But we, the reality is that we kind of have to deal with what we have in front of us. Yeah, and try and do that again, you know, there are a couple of what I think are kind of fascinating points. My son, Daniel, was asking about population growth this week, mm -hmm. and I just pulled up the, the World O-Meters Info World Population Clock so that it, I could speak a little bit more intelligently. But here's the crazy thing. A lot of people may not know, since I was born, the world's population has more than doubled. And that kind of blows my mind because I think of it it's as crazy. a historic <laughs> problem, right? Not something that happens in half a lifetime. And I'm not, I'm not really that old. So it blows my mind to think that. Another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that China has the most populous country, and then comes <laughs> India, and then comes, guess who's next? Is it us? It's us, the United States. And <laughs> part of that's because we're a large landmass. You know, we can, we can hold a lot of people. But that said, we're still less than a quarter of what India has. So, but there's a big, yeah. a big space there, but the United States is actually now the third most populated country on earth. Fascinating and growing very, very quickly. Oh yeah. And, and, and the, I mean, like when it comes to water use stuff, like we have to feed all those people and, you know, take care of them. Yeah. It, a lot of challenges and yeah. maybe we'll come up with some wonderful breakthroughs with clean energy and better farming techniques and, and better resource management so that Everyone can live a better life, and we can care for nature better than we have been. I mean, that's the goal to me. Yeah, no, I think so. And it's a, it's a, hard, it's a hard goal that takes a lot of compromise and a lot of kind of getting people who think differently in the same room to talk about things. And it's going to be a lot of, a lot of tiny, tiny battles, I think, to keep working forward and making sure we're doing things sustainably in a way that we can keep doing it and keep living here. Oh, yeah, no doubt. There's one other thing I'd love to, to say, just to, and we'll come back to the water, but what I found really interesting is that recent studies have found that the best way to manage the world's population is to increase the standard of living for the developing nations. And the reason for that is that rather than trying to do population control, they have found that when people know that 
they're going to be cared for in their old age, when people know that their children are not going to die, you know, with a high infant mortality rate in their country, when they know that, Mm -hmm. you know, their children can be educated, and as the society moves into a more, just a higher standard of living in general, people naturally back off on the number of children that they're having. And it's interesting because the rate of growth of the world's population is slowing down now because of that. It's a good trend. And, you know, people were pushing the panic button about 20 years ago saying this is, this is really, really bad. But if we continue on the way that we're going, the world's population is going to level off and, and hopefully at a sustainable level, although I'm no expert on that. But it's just something worth thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is definitely not my area of expertise either, but I think that is like a really important kind of like plug for globalization and plug for countries like America that have a good program of doing that for doing foreign aid and bringing information about healthcare. And hopefully we can kind of take the lessons that we've learned in the U.S. over the past several hundred years about, you know, industrialization or all these things, you know, healthcare and things like that, and then bring them to develop countries so they can faster than we did and can kind of help that population curve. Yeah. And it's fun to think that by helping people, you're actually helping the planet. That's, that's what I like. It doesn't have to be adversarial, right? It can be a matter of everybody working together and helping each other out and actually helping the, uh, the environment at the same time. So I think it's a really positive thing. And I guess as you were running the river here, that kind of became part of the experience was thinking about resources, especially water resources. Um, Did you take away any changes of heart or huge insights that you would like to share? I think the biggest, the biggest insight or the biggest thing I had been small minded about going into it is that like a lot of people who think really differently from me and come from really different perspectives, you know, these kind of big cattle ranchers or, you know, people working in the oil and gas fields or things like that, for the most part, are trying to do good. I think it just, it's going to take a lot of compromises and a lot of kind of bringing in multiple different perspectives to figure out a way that works, works a little bit for everybody. And like, obviously, you know, nothing's going to work perfectly for every single person or even for one group, but it's going to take a lot of, a lot of compromise, a lot of trying to get people talking to each other and finding some middle ground. So yeah, people who think differently than you are not necessarily wrong or trying to screw you over, I think is the big, the big takeaway. Maybe we all just need to know each other better. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. You wrote an article for the Smithsonian that was talking about getting water managers on the Yampa. Just give us a real brief overview of what that was about. It's kind of a neat idea. Yeah. Um, it's actually a really cool program. The, um, Yampa, uh, they call it the Yampa River Awareness Program and it's the, um, Friends of Yampa, which is a nonprofit group out of Steamboat Springs. Um, and the Yampa is the last, I think I mentioned it earlier, it's the last undammed tributary of the Colorado and kind of one of the mass, last major undammed rivers in the Western U.S. And so a lot of people, there's been a lot of kind of projects, proposed projects trying to dam it and divert water to the Front Range of Colorado and things like that. Um, it's sort of endangered. So this group every year brings out, I mean, they bring some journalists, but they also bring water managers and ranchers and people who work for power companies and government. You know, when I was there, the guy who's the head of Denver Water was there and somebody from a former interior secretary and a guy who runs the National Parks Foundation. Um, they take all these people out on the river to kind of and, you know, we sit in boats for five days and talk about 
what you think is the smartest way to manage the water. And I think it's this really powerful tool of getting people together and talking about it in a like low, low conflict zone to kind of think about what might hear other people's perspectives and then think about my, my work for everybody. And so that, that trip was actually a pretty big part of me wanting to do the Green River trip and kind of wanting to think about all the different aspects of water management and how they get along and how they don't and how it might shake out in the future. Yeah, I think that is so cool. It's easy for someone that's far removed from something, you know, that, that's in a, a building somewhere in an air-conditioned room with no windows to make I kind of make decisions or, or have ideas about how something is, but you put them actually out on the water together <laughs> and you say, okay, yeah, you're not right. in your office anymore. Now you're on the water. Let's talk here. I love that yeah, context. Like, you're not this jerk, you know, like small minded jerk that I thought you were. You're actually this like smart, thoughtful person who is trying to do this for a reason. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power in that, those kinds of conversations and trying to get people on the same page. I love it. I love what you're doing to help people to, to kind of, gain that awareness and that understanding, that perspective. That's, it's a beautiful thing. So your book that you're writing, it's not out yet. It's called Running the River. It's coming out not mm-hmm. this fall, but next fall. And it's going to be published by University of Chicago Press. Is that right? That is all correct. Yeah. Okay. So why the title Running the River? Um, it was sort of a play on, play on words of the idea of me kind of paddling the whole river and then also the idea of who's in charge of the water and who runs the river, you know, kind of from a, from a management, from a kind of like water use perspective. So hopefully, hopefully it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) So is the majority of the book about your trip itself or is it more about resource management or is it a nice combination of the two? Um, I tried to make it a nice combination of the two. I think of the two rather. Um, I mean, the idea was kind of to use the trip and what I saw and kind of who I talked to along the way to give a little bit of on the ground perspective about some of these debates that I think often can be sort of boring or wonky or hard to wrap your mind around. So hopefully it's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of that kind of travel narrative, but then there's also this kind of, you know, reported kind of issue based stuff too. So hopefully blend enough, enough action to keep it interesting and then enough, you know, policy to give people, give people who maybe aren't totally dialed into water use issues, some context on what's going on and what could potentially happen. So as a freelance journalist, you have, uh, man, a huge portfolio of writings. I can't begin to cover it all, but I want to encourage our listeners. There's a lot more to these stories, and Heather has written about so many things, not just about resource management on the river or this river trip, but uh, so much in skiing and biking and and other things. If you go to heatherhandsman.com, then she has... uh, a beautiful portfolio there of all these writings. And Heather, I don't know, there, it looks like there are probably 50 or something different articles and essays and, and writings that are, are uh, linked on your site here. So I would encourage our listeners to go be a part of that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And I'm not, I'm a little bit tardy in updating it sometimes. So um, I feel like I'm a little more on top of that, which is a chance than if people want to see that. But yeah, yeah people, you know, it's, it's always kind of interesting to see. This is the cool thing about being a writer is that you forget sometimes that people actually read your things and get stuff about it. So I love hearing from people and that's that's the cool part about it. Well, I think it's really fun and I'm just going to spell the website. It is Heather, H-E-A-T-H-E-R of course, but the last name is Hansman, H-A-N-S-M-A-N. So it's not hand, but hands, Hansman. So heatherhandsman.com and that's where you can find a whole lot more information about what Heather is up to and all of her writing and 
it's a, it's a really great resource. So Heather, thank you for putting that out there for us. Oh yeah. Thanks for chatting with me and having me on. This has been really fun. You bet. And for all of our listeners out there, as always, get out there and have some fun. This time, consider a raft trip. Think about going down a river for a while and, and gaining some of the perspectives that Heather was sharing with us. Tom Tursich is on year two of his five-year walk around the world. Kurt catches up with him on Monday's episode to see how it's all going. So until that episode, get out there and have some fun.